We're reading uh, Luke 22, starting at verse 52 through to 65. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guards, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow is with them, with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. I'll hand over to Richard now. Lovely to uh, see you uh, again this morning. Can we just pray for a moment? Father, as we come uh, to um, a passage of your word that is difficult because it speaks so deeply and directly into our weakness and our vulnerability, please would you draw near to us, we ask. By your spirit, just strengthen us in our inner being. And please forgive us for the times when we have disowned you and denied you. Please hear our prayers and help us now. And uh, Lord, may we come away from this time just loving the Lord Jesus more, being so grateful for that loving kindness of which we've just sung. Amen. Well, on the 10th of uh, April, 1912, in a blaze of publicity, she slipped her moorings and headed out into Southampton water. She was not only the largest and most luxurious ship afloat at the time, she was carrying some of the most wealthy people in the world, as well as hundreds of emigrants seeking a new life in the new world. It was said at her launch that not even God could sink this ship. Four days later, Titanic lay at the bottom of the Atlantic. More than 1,500 souls had perished. There's an element of the Titanic about the familiar story of Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus. And it's my prayer as we look at this this morning, we'll be able to connect with this story in our own lives. And I pray, as I have already prayed, that we will feel the Lord Jesus ministering to our hearts. True Christianity is deeply experiential. And uh, this session is part one of a story of astonishing, restoring grace. The wonderful news is after coffee we get part two. 
Jesus has been betrayed with a kiss. He's been arrested. His disciples have fled. But Peter has recovered himself enough to follow the arrest party to the high priest's house. And yet here in the high priest's courtyard, Peter is about to discover he is not as spiritually robust as he thought he was. Rocky, as the Lord Jesus likes to call him, turns out to be rather flaky. The heat of the day has given way to the cool of the night and people huddle around the fire to keep warm. Peter slips in, trying for all the world to look inconspicuous. Although he's shivering with cold, beads of sweat gather above his brow and the stage is set for Peter's undoing. Peter's threefold denial. Denial. It's a strong word. Denial, it's the opposite of confession. And uh, Peter's been big on confession. If you remember that famous encounter when Jesus asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's Peter who comes straight back with the answer. We know who you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And tragically, the Peter who once confessed to know Jesus' identity now claims he has no idea who Jesus is. Peter, the Peter who was all geared up for a fight in the garden when Jesus was arrested, is totally unprepared for a fight in the high priest's courtyard. First up, it's a servant girl who sees his face lit up in the amber glow of the fire. I think she's been staring at him for a while now and Finally, she leans in and says to her friends, this man, he, he was with him. Not a bouncer, not a member of the arrest squad, a servant girl. Not a particularly threatening figure, you'd think. In first century Israel, there aren't many people further down the pecking order than this young woman. She's not even talking directly to Peter. And yet immediately he feels that shudder down his spine. Woman, he says, I don't know him. It's an emphatic who. The first hurdle. And Peter falls flat on his face. And then as he stares into the fire, someone else comes up and says, you, you're also one of them. And frantically, Peter cuts him off. Man, I'm not. Last time it was an emphatic who, this time it's an emphatic no. And then according to Luke, there's a gap. A gap of about an hour. An hour in which Peter has time to think. Gosh, what have I said? What have I done? Maybe, maybe I've got away with it. Maybe there's a chance to redeem myself. Either way, as he thinks, he makes idle conversation with the folk around him. And this time it's his accent that gives him away. Look at verse 59. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Now remember, these are not times of great social mobility. And in the cultured environs of the high priest's courtyard, you can't miss Peter's northern vowels. 
Maybe he made the mistake of asking for the bathroom. I was going to ask if you remember the days when you had put, to put money in a phone to get a ringtone. But actually, with this cultured audience, I need to, can you remember a time when you needed a ringtone? Well, in my early days at uni, I used to ring home using one of these ancient contraptions. And to my surprise, I noticed that my mum and dad had started speaking in a funny voice. After a while, being a bright kind of lad, the penny finally dropped. They were simply speaking in their normal Suffolk accent, and it wasn't them who changed, it was me. Accents give us away. And coming back to verse 59, will you notice the word asserted, literally kept on insisting. About an hour later, another kept on insisting. Certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. And it's like a series of blows to Peter's uh, solar plexus. That these people, they know where Jesus is from, up north. And they can hear where Peter's from, up north. And they put two and two together. He's one of them. And Peter again tries to regain control, but before he knows it, he's done it again. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. This is Luke. How interesting in Mark's account. Mark's account, which is widely believed to have been informed by Peter. Mark puts it like this. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. We've kind of progressed from who to no to absolute rubbish. That's interesting, at least it interests me, that at no point does anyone issue any threats against Peter. No one challenges him for what he believes. It's very simple. You know him, don't you? And even at the end, no one tries to stop him as he walks off into the darkness. No, this is failure on an epic scale. And it all starts with a throwaway remark from a young servant girl. I might almost be tempted to ask whether this could actually happen this way if I didn't know myself better. Bitter experience teaches us that our downfall often starts with the smallest of beginnings. It's now that Jesus appears on the scene. Look carefully at verse 60, will you? Just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. As a proud owner of chickens myself, I know that cockerels normally crow in the morning. Have you ever thought that the crowing of this cock at night is a sign of God's grace? But it is. It kind of jerks Peter's mind back to Jesus. It's because Peter has been so consumed with himself that he's got into this muddle in the first place. You'd think Peter of all people would have remembered this. It was just yesterday, wasn't it, back in Matthew 14. It was when Peter took his eyes off the Lord Jesus that he started to sink. He had to learn the importance then of looking to Jesus. And he looks to Jesus again now. And what does he see? He sees Jesus looking 
at him. That word look, it means to stare intently. The Lord Jesus is looking right into Peter's soul. I wonder if there's ever been a look like this in the whole of human history. Is it a look of anger? A look of disappointment? A look of, I told you so? I think we can be sure of one thing. It is not a look of condemnation. Yes, it's a look that's full of pity and pain and pardon too. Peter may just have let Jesus down, but this look tells Peter that Jesus will never let him down. St. Augustine puts it beautifully. That look was the spark that lit the flame of Peter's repentance. Isn't that brilliant? That's worth coming for, wasn't it? That look was the spark that lit the flame of Peter's repentance. The road back, as we shall see, is going to be long and painful. But it all starts with that look. What Peter needs in this moment is not someone to remind him of his guilt and his failure. He's consumed with that already. He's already replaying everything that's gone beforehand. That ridiculous bravado in the upper room. That prayerlessness in Gethsemane. The adrenaline rush of Jesus' arrest. It's all flooding back. But what's done is done. He can't turn the clock back. He can't put the record straight. It's too late to be saying, what have I been thinking? Of course I know him. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I love him. Instead, Luke tells us in verse 62, he went outside and wept bitterly. Consumed with self-loathing, Peter leaves the Lord Jesus alone and goes outside into the darkness. Peter, the rock, is shattered. I just stop and think about this for a moment, will you? After all, Jesus and Peter have been through together after kind of what we've been through with them. That, that encounter in the boat when Jesus first calls and commissions Peter to be a fisher of men. That, that time when, when Jesus came toward them in a storm on the lake and Peter climbed out of the boat and walked on water. That, that moment when he saw the Lord Jesus in all his heavenly glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those times when Peter was transfixed by the sermons he heard and the miracles he saw. And now this. Let's just turn to the Lord Jesus for a fleeting moment. It all serves to heighten the sense of abandonment that he feels as he approaches the cross. Even Peter has denied him. But it also serves to remind us that the very best of believers still need a saviour. Not one of us, not even he, Peter, can be the hero we need. That role is left for Jesus alone. So how did we get here? I mean, how has it come to this? I mean, it's like a kind of slow-motion car crash, isn't it? We can sort of see it unfolding before our very eyes, and there's nothing we can do about it. I, I kind of, I don't know about you, but I sort of almost want to reach into the page and, and shout at Peter and grab him and say, wake up, man, can't you see where this is going? But that's the story. 
And the question I want to ask is, where do we, what do we learn from it? And I want to suggest three lines of application. And here's the first. Our love for Jesus marks us out. We need to take that to heart. These two lovely students who've just been talking to us, their love for Jesus marks them out. It makes them different. And our love for Jesus makes us different. Have you ever stopped to ask, why does Peter follow Jesus to the high priest's house? I mean, at one level, it was not the brightest thing in the world to do. It's kind of smacks of Daniel volunteering to enter the lion's den, doesn't it? Why does he do it? Well, he did it for exactly the same reason as he got out of the boat yesterday. He wants to be where Jesus is. Peter can still remember the day vividly when, when the boat almost capsized with a sheer number of fish they caught that day. And Jesus told them to cut when Jesus told them to cast their nets into the water. Uh, Peter can still vividly remember that day when, when he would send Peter out to, to catch men and women. He fell in love with Jesus that day. And he's been captivated by him ever since. But the moment he left his boats and his nets and everything else to follow Jesus, Peter changed sides. A bit like a Liverpudlian who decides to start supporting Everton. Not that I can imagine why anybody would do that. He became a marked man. It was love for Jesus that caused him to get out of the boat in the middle of the storm yesterday. And it's love for Jesus now that causes him to follow into the high priest's house tonight. And Luke wants us to know that he's a marked man. It's not just Jesus who's in the dock. Both Jesus and Peter are on trial simultaneously. Jesus on trial by the Sanhedrin upstairs. Peter on trial by the people in the courtyard below. I imagine most of us here today will identify with Peter. We love the Lord Jesus too. We've committed our lives to following him. We really want to live lives that please him and honor him. But we need to face the fact that the moment we publicly identified with Jesus Christ, we crossed an invisible line. We too became marked men, marked women. In time, the Apostle Paul will go on to explain it like this. We've moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that will inevitably mark us out as Peter discovers to his cost. Our love for Jesus marks us out. But the snag is our love of self makes us vulnerable. Our love of self makes us vulnerable. Love for Jesus, yes, but there's a battle raging in Peter's heart. He's also consumed with self-love and self-protection. Have you noticed the, the point at which temptation strikes? It's not in the usual areas of money or, or sex or power, those things that trip us up so often. No, it's in the area of witnessing. That the very moment Peter enters the high priest's courtyard, he's entering the witness box. He's either got to admit his friendship for Jesus or deny it. There's not going to be any middle ground. And that's how it is for us. Our, our faith is on trial every day. 
and often we'll face the test. Are we going to speak for the Lord Jesus or are we going to keep quiet? And we need to remember that keeping quiet when we should speak out is simply a passive way of denying the Lord Jesus. Tomorrow morning, someone at work or someone at college is going to ask you the question, and what did you do this weekend? And what are you going to say? You're going to mumble something incoherent about a, a weekend away somewhere in the depths of Northamptonshire? Or are you going to say that with joy in your face and in your voice and a sparkle in your eye that you spent the weekend with Jesus people, worshipping him and learning about him? Why do we do this, Peter, stuff, do you think? Because the moment we feel threatened, maybe this is just me, but I don't think it is. The moment we feel threatened in any kind of way, an internal dialogue immediately kicks in. Where is this conversation going? Are they going to think I'm mad? They won't like me anymore. How am I going to get out of this? It's fight or flight. And far too often I choose flight. Imagine for a moment I'm sitting on a train Opposite me are a couple having an animated discussion about a story they're reading in the paper. It's about clerical abuse in the church under some lurid headline. They're not surprised, they say. Everyone knows church is full of hypocrites. The sooner we move on from fairy tales about Jesus, the better. And do you know what I say in response? Yes, you do. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I redouble my gaze on my book and studiously keep reading. That's an imaginary story, but only just. I suspect we've all had that kind of experience. So again, let me ask the question, why do we do it? And I want you to come back with me just a few verses to verse 25 in our, our chapter. We're in the upper room. Jesus has just shocked the disciples first by washing their feet and then by declaring the Passover meal they're just sharing together is going to be their last and finally by announcing that it's going to be one of them who will finally betray him to the authorities. But while Jesus is stealing himself to go to the cross, what are Peter and the others doing? They're arguing. Arguing about which of them should be the greatest. I might get into trouble for this. But Peter, bless him, is a bit like Boris at this point. He's full of bluster and bravado. Lord, I must be the greatest. I'm ready to go to prison and to death for you. Uh, probably I've got an oven-ready plan to stick by you and rescue you. Oh, no, let's forget that. I haven't got the hair to go with it. In other words, Peter is blinded by a sense of competitive pride. And so am I. Not, not in quite such a crass and obvious way, maybe. But the internal dialogue that runs through my every waking moment is all about me. And guarding the castle of my heart. I am massively self-protecting. So what happens when following Jesus starts to cost me? When following Jesus starts to threaten my sense of security, I think that's a question we would all do well to ask ourselves this morning. Is following Jesus a means to an end?
Have I unwittingly bought into some kind of prosperity gospel? And that matters because if following Jesus is ultimately for my benefit, then I'll constantly be at risk of doing a Peter and denying Jesus. Because love of self makes me vulnerable. It constantly threatens my downfall. But if this passage contains the ultimate example of spiritual denial, it also contains the ultimate best news for serial deniers. Because the third thing is that Jesus' love for us is our constant hope. Jesus' love for us is our constant hope. Come back with me to verse 31. While Peter and the others are arguing about which of them should be considered to be the greatest, Jesus looks Peter straight in the eye and says, Simon, Simon, Simon notice, not Jesus' preferred name, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. Brackets, and it isn't going to. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that wonderful? Don't miss what comes next. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as, as wheat. It's all very reminiscent of the permission Job obtained to test, sorry, Satan uh, obtained to, to test Job back at the beginning. I'm just reading through the book of Job again. And, and those opening chapters are absolutely extraordinary as we have this interchange between uh, Father God and, and Satan who seems to have access to the heavenly court. And here is Satan again. And he's asking this time to have a crack at Peter and the other disciples. He's going to thresh their faith and he's going to beat it and beat it and beat it into the ground until the husk is broken. And then he's going to show the world what's really inside the disciples' hearts. And the backbone of Jesus' revolution will be broken. At least that's what he thinks. But Satan's overlooked something. Or maybe I should say, Satan's overlooked someone. But I have, I, I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. Don't miss the irony here, will you, that Peter's fall takes place in the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter hasn't yet appreciated that he's got a high priest, a great high priest, who has prayed for him. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin explores this theme in his classic, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, which has been deliciously popularized in Dane Auckland's book, Gentle and Lowly. For all his glory, Jesus has not become so high and mighty that he doesn't care for us. He's still the friend of sinners. Goodwin argues two things that stir Jesus' heart our afflictions, and our failures. Now, we might understand that Jesus might be moved by our afflictions, but our failures. And Goodwin argues that our failures move him to pity more than they move him to anger. His anger is turned away from us and on to destroying our sin. Like Peter, when we sin, we want to run from him. 
but instead we should he, he runs towards us to heal us and to restore us. It's that look of love in his eye that turns us around and draws us back. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that it's not angels that Jesus helps. It's weak people like Peter and me and maybe you. Jesus hasn't changed. I prayed for you, Simon. I prayed that your faith may not fail. And even when I can't pray and I don't know what to pray, he can and he does. He prays for us. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Ah, so that's the point of this episode. This episode is recorded in our Bibles to strengthen us. I don't think that simply means that Peter will go on to strengthen us through his subsequent ministry, wonderful though that is. No, I think Jesus means that Peter will strengthen us through his very restoration. The winnowing is over. All that is left is the naked kernel of faith, but it's a kernel of faith that Satan can't touch. So how are we to draw strength from this account? Well, it seems to me that there's a right way and a wrong way. The wrong way is to say to ourselves, ha, even Peter failed. Well, if Peter can fail, then what hope is there for me? I don't need to worry, at least I haven't done anything as bad as he did. I look at Peter and somehow feel better about myself. I think my instincts suggest that is not the best way forward. So what is the right way? The right way is to recognize I am every bit as bad as Peter. And given the right circumstances, I too can be, have been, probably will continue to be a serial Christ denier. I've discovered that the Lord Jesus isn't surprised by what Peter does and he's not surprised by what I do either. Now, it is easy to take false comfort from that. Nobody's perfect after all. <clears throat> but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that I am as bad as Peter. I don't need to worry. The gospel is that Jesus is still wonderful. See, the point is that the Lord Jesus is dying. In the very next few hours, he will be stretched out on a cross. He will bear the sins of the world, including Peter's denial and mine. And he will go all the way to heaven and back so that I can be forgiven and put on the path that leads to heaven. There is amazing grace for failures like Peter and you and me. And that's the source of our strength this morning. See, where we would give up on people, where we find it difficult to forgive people, where we would feel unable to ever trust people again. Jesus is not like that because of the cross. And that's why this story can give strength to people who feel crushed in our spirit and feel overwhelmed by a sense of guilt and shame. There is a way back for those who feel alone outside in the darkness. It's not taking comfort in the sins of others. It is found in seeking comfort 
from the one who bears our sins for us. Look again at verse 31, will you? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus has been praying for Peter. Was he praying for him on that windswept mountainside as they saw the disciples grappling with the storm in the middle of the lake? Was he praying for them as he wrestled in anguish with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane? I'm reminded of some words of the great Scottish divine Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he is praying for you too. Wonderfully, Father God answered the prayers of his son. Peter's faith may have been dented, but it didn't fail. Peter's subsequent life and ministry go on to prove that, don't they? There are going to be plenty more ups and downs, but the Lord Jesus has covered them all. You see, strength in the face of our sin comes in confessing it to the God of grace. Not denying it, not trivializing it. It's exactly the opposite to what the world says. The world says, try to excuse it. Find some explanation for it. The gospel invites us to bring it to Jesus and draw our strength from a never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Even if we hit rock bottom, even if we do something we never believed we would ever do, we don't need to catastrophize it. All is not lost because Jesus has the final say over all our betrayals and all our denials. We simply can't fail our way out of his favor. I may fall into disgrace, but I will never fall from grace. So, how am I going to walk away from these verses this morning? Shaking my head in despair about Peter? I mustn't do that. The harsh fact is I'm just like him. Or am I going to walk away from these passages shaking my head in wonder that a saviour like Jesus loves me? He's just been betrayed by Judas. He's just been denied by Peter. Everyone else has deserted him and fled. His pole ratings have fallen off a cliff. He's on trial for his life. And how does he respond? By reaching out to restore a broken disciple. His love is unwavering and unconditional. Isn't Jesus amazing? I want to finish with some words of an old hymn. It's an old hymn we don't sing too often these days. I'm quite glad we don't sing it because I want to cry every time I do. The words go like this. Jesus, how could I ever be ashamed of you who died for me? Ashamed of you whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, of my God, who purchased me with his own blood, of him who to retrieve my loss, despised my shame, endured the cross. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend. No, 
When I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, of my Lord, by all heaven's glorious hosts adored? No, he my boast will ever be, in time and in eternity. Then, till then, I'll boast of him who gave his life my sinful soul to save. May this alone my glory be, that Christ is not ashamed.